Well, good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Before we get there, though, I want to remind you where we've come from and the trajectory of where we're going. Uh, Several weeks ago in our study, we saw the leaders of Israel make threats against Peter and John for proclaiming the gospel. At the time, the leaders let them go, but Luke records that thousands of disciples were added to their number that day. It was such miraculous numbers, it was only a matter of time before those threats became something more. And then last week, we saw seven men appointed as servant leaders, one of whom was a man named Stephen. His role was to help administer the distribution of food amongst the widows. He was a model of perhaps what would become the office of the deacon, but that wasn't all that he did. We discover in verses 8 and following that Stephen was full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So let's, let's read what happened next in verses 8 through 15. If you'd stand as we read, recognizing this is God's authoritative word. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God and And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word and continue to read it here in this section, I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that you would help us to be encouraged, exhorted, changed by what we read today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, unfortunately, the working of miracles and the increase in Jesus' disciples could no longer be tolerated by the leaders. There arose some from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, and they, it says, instigated secretly men to say that Stephen had spoken blasphemy against Moses and God. And verse 12 says that they even brought false accusers who stirred up the people and the elders, and the scribes, and they seized him and brought him before the council. And so the stage is set again. We've seen some of this type of thing happen earlier in the book. We watched Peter questioned by the crowd in the streets. And then we watched him imprisoned and interrogated by the Sanhedrin. And in both cases, Peter responded to accusations and threats by proclaiming Christ, but then he was let go. And unfortunately, that's not going to be the case with Stephen. In fact, Stephen's sermon found in Acts chapter 7 is the longest recorded 
speech in this book takes up 43 verses. It's a brief summary of the time from Abraham until Moses and the Exodus. And in that summary, he implies several important things that greatly angered the Jewish leaders. And I want to read the first six verses together for now. It says, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred, go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, lived in Haran after his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them. Who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years? So that's what we read in those first verses of chapter 7. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there are several important things that are implied by Stephen I want us to understand them because as we read those, you might think, well, this is just a retelling of of what we can already read in the Old Testament. But the first thing that Stephen implies is a challenge to the belief that was popular in his time that dwelling in the land of Israel guaranteed God's blessing. Stephen, for example, reminds his audience how God called Abraham out of a foreign land and how Abraham dwelt in Israel but never was able to call it his own. And what you need to know is that when the Israelites finally settled in Canaan, especially during the kingdoms of David and Solomon, they began to think that Israel was the only sacred place on earth. Every place else was defiled. People today, both Jew and Christian, use the term holy land to refer to Israel. And by that, they mean that Israel is a holy place, maybe holier than other places. But the rabbis didn't think that Israel was holier than other countries. They thought that Israel was the only holy ground and that everything outside of Israel was darkness and death. If an Israelite walked in another country, it was the same as walking on a grave. If a spot of Gentile dust touched an offering, that offering was to be burned at once and replaced with a separate offering. And we see a little bit of that sense of this when we read Christ's command to his disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out to preach the gospel where Jesus told them, whoever does not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city Shake off the dust dust from your feet. Now the rabbis said you were to shake the dust off of heathen ground, where heathen ground was defined as anything Gentile. What does Jesus do? He turns it upside down, doesn't he? He says that heathen ground is any place that is populated by those who rejected him, including an Israelite city, if it rejected the gospel. And you can see how the disciples were to treat the ground of that place as if it were unclean or unholy. And so listen again to what Stephen says in verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia 
before he lived in Haran. So God blessed Abraham even though Abraham did not yet possess as much as one square foot of Israel. Furthermore, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia and called him before Israel even existed when Abraham was what? A Gentile. And what is Stephen's point? That God is the Lord not only of a limited geographical area like the land of Israel, but he's the Lord of the whole world. He can call both Jew and Gentile to follow him. And we learn from chapter 6 that Stephen's audience was the council, was the Sanhedrin. His words were a rebuke to those who thought they had no need of salvation. These leaders had forgotten that as wonderful as possessing the land, as wonderful as it was to be descended from Abraham, they were nevertheless still just pilgrims, if their attitude was right, just like their ancestor Abraham had once been. In Hebrews 11, we're reminded that by faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as if in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And what does that mean? Well, Hebrews goes on to say that Abraham waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That city whose builder and maker is God is is heaven, ultimately. And while Abraham delighted in God's promise to him to give him an earthly inheritance, what he truly valued was an eternal inheritance. And throughout the whole time, he lived in Israel in tents. It wasn't even his earthly inheritance. At least not for him personally. He didn't even ever get the chance to call Israel his own country. And so the rulers of Israel in Jesus' time, they had their focus backwards. They had stopped looking forward to the eternal city, right, as their father Abraham had done. And they are instead allowing God's earthly blessings to eclipse their sense of not only God's presence, but also of their future inheritance. And let's let's pull that to our time. Do you do that? Do you measure God's blessing by what you have? God gave me this family. He gave me this church or this job. Well, Stephen would have you separate yourself from the short-term blessings of this world. And remember, your principal focus must be on the blessing to come. It's the city with true foundations. At any time, something can radically change your life. You can lose your family. You can lose your home. You can lose your church, your finances, your employment. Job lost most of those things. But any earthly loss is not a removal of God's blessing if you are faithful. Job was a righteous man. He counted himself worthy to be tested. You may be tested in a similar way. The true blessing is that you have this eternal hope. Just like Abraham. Often the hardest thing to do is to wait, isn't it? to wait on that eternal blessing. In the meantime, we get consumed with the things that are right in front of us. If we knew that Christ would come next month, we would probably give our full attention to avoiding sin, to praying, to serving, 
to other things of eternal value, but to be about God's kingdom work month after month, year after year, with promises seemingly no clearer, no nearer to fulfillment than when we were first saved, that takes faith. It takes a right focus. I remember watching a biographical film about William Carey. Some of you know his story. Spent 35 years in India as a missionary. He saw only a handful of converts. And Wendy was reminding me this past week how at one point carries 20 years of work, his entire work to that point, all of his manuscripts, because he was a linguist that was translating uh, the Bible into various dialects there of India. So all of his work was burned down. And most people would have packed up at that point and said, well... Maybe God doesn't intend for, for this to go on. But this is what he wrote in a letter. We must labor again. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. And so he started again. And despite what at times seemed like backwards progress, little success, because of Carrie. Every Christian missionary who has gone to India owes a debt to him who translated the Bible into over 40 Indian dialects. He planted so that future missionaries could water and bring in the harvest. And he saw the fruit of his labor only by faith. In fact, he saw the fruit of his labor at first go up in smoke, right? How do you start again after two decades of work are gone How do you not grow weary in the well-doing? Well, remember the admonishment of James in James chapter 5. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. He's patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, James said. And so the secret of William Carey's patience, of Abraham's patience was hope in the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. Yes, the land of Israel would be nice for his future descendants to settle in, but that was not the true gift. You've heard the phrase, again, thinking back upon us, you've heard the phrase, one can be so heavenly minded that he is no earthly good. Remember this one instead. It is impossible to be of any real earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. Only those focused on eternity will have patience and the proper focus to remain faithful and steadfast in God's work when it becomes hard or unfair or they're unappreciated. Only the heavenly focus will not get distracted by, on the opposite side, the prosperity that they enjoy. And that's why Paul tells us to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. And heaven is called many things in Scripture, but perhaps the most encouraging name is the one Ezekiel gives it, the Lord is there. And that brings us back to Acts chapter 7. Stephen's argument that it's the presence of God that makes a place holy because God is there. If you skip down to verse 29, Stephen goes on to talk about how Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. 
And when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Where was Moses when God appeared to him? Was he in Israel? No, just like Abraham, he was outside of Israel. He's in the middle of a desert in Midian. And then God appears to him again in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai. And notice what God says to him in the next verse. The Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Well, remember, what did the Israelites think? Only Israel is holy ground. The rabbi said, in fact, that there were ten levels of holiness to Israelite ground. Nothing, of course, outside of Israel was holy. It was like a grave, like I said. But there was, within Israel, different levels of holiness. The least holy was the dirt along the side of the roads of Israel. Okay? That was level one. The most holy was what? What do you think? Be the temple site. The temple in Jerusalem, that was level 10 holy ground. What does God say? It doesn't matter where you are. Because the only thing that creates a holy place is the presence of God. Even the wilderness outside of Israel where there's nothing of significance can become holy ground. So take off your sandals, Moses, even in front of this scraggly bush. Similarly for us today, you do not have to be in a special place to worship God. There's nothing sacred about this building. And when we come in here, maybe we're reminded of it every week. Definitely nothing sacred about this building. We call it church. But other than the fact that the true church, God's people, gather in it, when you go home, the church goes home. And this building simply becomes what it is, which is a theater that's used on occasion. As Stephen says down in verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? And you see what Stephen has done. He's broken down the holiness of the promised land He's broken down the holiness of the temple as God's special place of dwelling because God can, his presence can be anywhere that he chooses. And really, we are always in the presence of God because what? God is spirit. He is everywhere. I want you to notice another point working its way here in Acts 7. In verse 9, we read that the patriarchs becoming jealous sold Joseph into Egypt. And then we read down in verse 22, Moses was instructed on all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling. He tried to reconcile them. 
saying, man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? What's similar between those two sections, saying that the patriarch's jealous of Joseph and then what this response is of Moses? What you see is that they are rejected. What Stephen is saying is they were rejected by their own people. And it's verse 38 that makes his point clear. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us, but what? Our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, just like they had done earlier in his life. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Now you have to ask, why does Stephen choose these things? Why does he say them in the way that he does? You're the ruling council. You're listening. You're the Sanhedrin. He's dismantling everything that that makes you proud of and self-righteous in who you are. And then he comes and he says that the people of Israel rejected their leaders, rejected Joseph, rejected Moses. He is implying they've done it again. These ones who are listening to him have rejected their leader. Who would their leader be? It would be Jesus. And so the full impact is heard down in verse 51, if it's not obvious by this point. And it was obvious. But very, very obvious at this point, verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Anytime you are said to be stiff-necked, yes, that's not positive. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not just them. He's incorporating previous generations because that's what he was just describing. You as a, as a people who were supposed to be the people of God and set apart, right? True Israelites like you consider yourselves. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. You did exactly what your fathers did. They killed the ones that announced the coming of the righteous one, and then you killed the righteous one. That's what he's saying. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by the angels and did not keep it. So... He's laying them at least by words bare before him. All their claims to privilege says that while they may have been circumcised of the flesh, they certainly were not circumcised in heart and ears like Joshua had told the people, like Moses had told the people, don't just be circumcised of the flesh, be circumcised of your heart. Serve the Lord, obey him, love him. Paul very clearly writes in Romans chapter 2, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What does uncircumcision represent in the minds of these listeners? It represents the Gentiles. 
not only has he just said that everything that you count to be holy and privileged about Israel is, is really not a privileged status in that sense, but you've actually become the very thing you despise. You've become uncircumcised because you do not obey the law. So if a man, Paul says, who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, these are the Gentiles, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, the Gentiles, who are obedient to God, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law, the Jewish individuals who rely on the fact that they have all the privileges. For no one as a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. The outward is just a symbol of what it is to be done inside. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letters. Praise is not from man, but from God. And I find it ironic that the very person who, who wrote those words was holding the cloaks of the men who were there steaming over Stephen in his words. Paul's not a Christian at this time. He's one of those who, as the next verse says, ground their teeth, enraged. In fact, Paul is so enraged, we're going to find in Acts that he wants to be the representative to go outside of the city, go up to Damascus and other areas. He wants to gather together all of those who proclaim the follow of the way, follow Jesus Christ, bring them back for persecution, just like they're about to do uh, to Stephen. So verses 57 to 59 tell us the sad conclusion, right? They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, the Lord, Lord Jesus received my spirit. And we see in verses 55 to 56 that Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that was the last draw, right? Last straw. That's what caused them to, to drag him outside of the city and stone him for what they considered the worst blasphemy possible. Author Kent Hughes notes that every other passage in Scripture, I think this is interesting, every other passage in Scripture that pictures Jesus in heaven, pictures him as seated at the right hand of the Father, seated upon his throne, but on this one occasion, he is standing at the right hand of God. And Hughes' conclusion is that Christ came to his feet with arms open to welcome the first Christian martyr home. There may, in fact, be even more significance to Christ standing before the throne. As F.F. F. Bruce, another commentator, puts it, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. That's what he's been doing, this whole speech. And now he sees Christ confessing his servant before the Father. The proper posture for a witness is a standing position. And Stephen, being condemned by an earthly court, appeals for vindication to a heavenly court, and his vindicator in that supreme court of all courts 
is Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father as his advocate. I like both thoughts. They're, they're good. Jesus, the, the faithful witness, standing at the throne, praying, interceding, pleading, supporting, welcoming his people. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before the Father. And if that was the case, then Stephen caught a glimpse of what was a second and much greater trial than the one in which he was involved. Up to this moment, he had only been able to see this earthly trial, this, this farce, right, of justice. He's condemned by this earthly court, but at the moment of his death, he catches a glimpse of what will happen for every single one who is of Christ. And in that trial, if you will, Jesus takes his side, pleads his case, and prevails. And there's such a great contrast between Stephen and those who stand there before him as his executioners. The Sanhedrin, the ones that he'd been talking to, not only in chapter 7, but back in chapter 6, they are laid, revealed, if you will, by what Stephen has talked about, their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, their self-reliance, their blindness. They are in a frenzy. They have gnashing teeth, raised voices, brutality, violence. It's so much a contrast, isn't it, with Stephen's humility. Stephen doesn't defend himself. He even prays over those who causes death. And I like Tennyson poet once wrote, he heeded not reviling tones, nor sold his heart to idle moans, though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones. But looking upward, full of grace, he prayed. And from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. Is that a great last sentence? God's glory smote him on the face. We can learn much from Stephen this morning. We are pilgrims in this land. We're in the world, but not of the world. We can't rely upon the comfort of this church facility as if it grants us some special status by saying, I'm a member of a church, and I go there every Sunday. Our true privilege is that we are called by God. And where he is, that is holy ground. And we can worship him everywhere. And we are always in before the presence of God. So even as we step forth into our office, we can be in worship, right? There's nothing magical about coming here on Sunday mornings. We're to be about the process of worshiping God at all times. And during that time period of our life, we will, like Stephen, face trials and our endurance of them must be such that we bear a faithful testimony. We are not saved by land or ritual, but by the grace of God. And you may be appointed to have little impact on the people around you. It may be that you'll have a great impact and not even know it. William Carey, during his lifetime, didn't see, like I said, the, the fruit of those labors. On the other hand, you may be appointed to have a large impact on those around you. Stephen, I'm sure, contrary to his expectations, was 
brought before the highest court of the land. You know, kind of the same theme as before with Peter, right? I'll never have an opportunity like this again. Well, same thing with Stephen. Brought before the highest court of the land, the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ before the very man who would what? Become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. I agree with those who say that it is not in the easy times that we reveal who we are. It's in the difficult times like this. And who knows how God may have been preparing you over the course of your life, all those myriad little moments, for that one Stephen moment, right? Voltaire, a French philosopher, used to say concerning Christ, curse the wretch. He also boasted in 20 years Christianity will no longer exist. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. <laughs> That's what Voltaire said. He was pretty proud, confident, and yet, when Voltaire died, he cried this in desperation, I am abandoned by God and man. I give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months more life. And then, last words, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. What? What an attitude. Contrast that, though, with Adoniram Judson, missionary to Myanmar, once called Burma, suffering immensely at death, who says to those around him, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. That's what Adoniram Judson said. Very different between those two men, or Julian the Apostate, or any, these great, uh, great being famous atheist apostles, you know, atheists who were so vile and, and their words so hopeless compared to a Judson. Or Jonathan Edwards, when he was dying, gave some final directions to his daughter and said, Where is Jesus, my never failing friend? And so on this last day of his life, Stephen lived as these men, as Christ lived. His name, Stephanos in Greek, means crowned one. It's a perfect name for the one who stands tall on this day. Crowned as the first martyr of the Christian faith. He shows us how to live as a man full of grace and wisdom, how to die with his eyes fixed Upon Christ, confessing him even in the midst of persecution, praying for his enemies. So I don't know what God has in store for each of you. And some of you are so young that you think, it's so far in the future, how could it be me? But remember this, Ephesians 2 talks about how God has appointed good works for you before the foundation of the world. You're called to be obedient, to be faithful in the task, to look for those opportunities to be a faithful witness to Christ. And we are told that if we are his, Jesus owns us. He pleads our case in heaven. And as long as that is true, you can endure anything, right? 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good word of these chapters here in Acts. I thank you for the faithfulness in Stephen and the boldness that he had in really laying bare the false comforts, the false securities that these powerful men held on to. Thank you, Lord, that even though it was not going to go well for him, even as he could see these people growing in greater and greater anger, he had the courage to say that it was that type of sin and self-righteousness that put to death the king of glory. And thank you, Lord, for the example of Stephen's faithful humility. Lord, may it be for us an encouragement that we live the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.